Would you uh, pray with me as we begin? Heavenly Father, we open our hearts and minds to you. We ask that we can hear from you this morning. You are the great revelator, and you are revealing yourself to us in the book of Revelation and every day. You're present with us always, everywhere. We ask that you would reveal yourself in your word this morning and help us both to hear what you're saying and to apply it to our lives. Lead us, we ask, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, theologians call the study of end times themes eschatology, fancy word for end times. Uh, it means last things. And uh, my dear friend and mentor, Chuck Burkett, uh, says that he was taught when he was in seminary that eschatology was not to lead us to speculation, but to lead us to ethics, to righteousness, to righteous thought and action so that we glorify God. Uh, you know, many of us, when we look at the book of Revelation, we start speculating. We start looking at things, well, I wonder what this means, and I wonder what that means, and, and how this applies, and when this is happening, and all of those kinds of things. And we're trying to work out the details of what this means and that means. But, you know, in the end, it really doesn't matter what the little toe on the left foot of the beast really means. That's not the intention of the book. The book should move us to changed hearts and lives that are lived for Jesus. Amen? Amen? As early as my first year as a Christian new believer in uh, 1982, uh, I was shown charts that speculated on exactly what would happen and how uh, related to end times in the book of Revelation. Charts like this one. Oh, the one that's going to come up here any second now if I just keep pushing the button. Is that going to come up? Probably not. <laughs> Okay, so you've probably seen these end times charts. They, uh, they, they lay out this is going to happen, then this is going to happen, then this is going to happen, and, and this is how this is going to work, and this is who it's going to affect. And there are literally hundreds of these charts. And, uh, you know, they all disagree with each other. None of them really um, share the same material. And, uh, you know, it's interesting that... Uh, that theological systems like dispensationalism will divide all of biblical time into ages uh, or dispensations and try to spell out, you know, this is where all this is going to happen. And we're talking about hundreds of theologians. A lot of them, you know them. You've read their books. You've seen them on television. But the more I read my Bible as a new believer and the more I thought about all of this and, and what what does it mean? I, I began to wonder, did these guys read the same Bible that I read? You know, Jesus himself said he didn't know when it was going to happen when he was on earth. And if Jesus, the Son of God, didn't know, then how did all these jokers figure it out? Where'd they get their special inside information? When Jesus was talking to his disciples in Matthew 24, he said, heaven and earth will pass away but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, nobody knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. 
That is how it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in a field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding on the handmill, and one will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Then down in verse 44, it says, So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So I'd like to encourage you to remember that as we're going through. You know, you're going to see all of these charts all over the place, and these people are telling you this is what's going to happen and when. And I'd like you to remember that that's not the point. That's not the focus. That's not where we should be. There will be a judgment. And there will be a judgment on earth because of sin and sin's corruption. And Jesus will return to claim his people And we need to be ready. We need to be ready because no one, not the guy on TV, not the guy in the book, knows when it's going to happen. And that means we need to start being ready now because we don't know. It could happen at any time. So we're in Revelation chapter 7, and uh, Revelation chapter 6, we began to see God's wrath being revealed after the opening of the sixth seal. And um, we find people who are faced with all of you know, God beginning to reveal himself in this way, and, and people began hiding because they don't want to face the Father God or Jesus, the Lamb. And so uh, we see the birth pangs that, that Jesus talked about in Matthew 24. They tell us that the Lord is returning soon, and, and, uh, and those things are starting to happen. You know, It talks about a great earthquake. It talks about the sun turning black, the moon turning blood red, the stars falling to earth, the heavens rolled back like a scroll, mountains and islands being moved. This is heavy stuff that he's seeing. And then we turn over to chapter 7, and there's a pause. It's like God gives us a little breathing space, was giving John a little bit of breathing space, and, and refocusing us on what really matters, what our priorities are. And, and so now we're, we're kind of turning back to heaven again. You know, we're, in the, we're still in the throne room of God. We haven't moved down to the throne room of God. Uh, if you've got your Bible with you this morning, I encourage you to turn to chapter 7. If you haven't, there's a pew Bible nearby, and, uh, and I think you'll find it a lot easier if you're able to read as we uh, go along this morning. Because of the length of the text that we're reading, uh, we're not putting all the words up on the screen. We're looking at Revelation chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. And then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. And then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 
12,000, from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000, and from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. And after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were given white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell down on their faces before the throne, and they worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our Lord who lives forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders asked me, uh, these in white robes, who are they? Where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are those who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. And never again will they hunger, and never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Have you ever had a bad dream? I mean a really bad dream, one, that, one that's really vivid, that just seems so real in every detail. Have you ever had one like that? And, and it's kind of hard to distinguish when you start to wake up. You know, am I still asleep? Is this real? What's going on? Um, when I was a child, about four, my family moved to England for a year, and uh, we went by ocean liner. And we went by ocean liner during the Atlantic storm season because that's when the tickets were the cheapest. And we had one of the poorer cabins that was further below decks, and during the crossing, my parents were seasick for almost the entire time. Now, it takes days to get across the Atlantic, and uh, I don't remember a lot of it, but I do remember waking up in that cabin. It was dark, and my parents were moaning and groaning, and my sister, who was just a baby in the bassinet, was screaming, and, and they couldn't really tend to her and take care of her. My mom says that at some point a purser came in and looked after us as children because, because we were um, being left on our own too much. It was dark, and it was smelly, and it was scary. And you know, for years I had a nightmare about that, and I would wake up in that cabin feeling alone and feeling helpless and scared. And there was a lot more to that story, but I won't tell it this morning, but it all seemed so real. It just seemed so real, and so I'd wake up sweating, and I'd wake up paralyzed with fear. And then slowly, it would dawn on me that it was only a dream. And you'd look around and you'd see familiar surroundings and I'd realize I was in my bedroom and that I was safe and this wasn't happening and I could just go back to sleep and rest. So here we are in the book of Revelation chapter 7 and John has just seen this sort of horrific looking vision and, and he knows what's coming for his people. He's Pastor John. 
He's Bishop John. He's the overseer of the seven churches of, of that part of the region and the Mediterranean. And, and he's looking, he sees what's coming for his people, the ones he loves and, and shepherds. He sees that there is going to be persecution. And, and there are some terrible ways in some of his flock are going to die because of their faith. And then God pauses and shows him reality chosen behind the curtain what's really going on the life they've been living the life they've been suffering the things that they've been going through they are the nightmare but they're going to wake up from this bad dream someday and they're going to wake up in a safe place it's a place of rest familiar surroundings in the throne room of heaven uh, the temple of God is represented in the throne room of heaven the one on earth is actually a reflection of that temple. This is ultimate reality. This is ultimate truth. And, and it's something that we need to consider too. That what we're going through, the suffering that we experience is the beginning. But it's not the end. No way is it the end. It's only the, the temporary part. This is the true reality that he's being shown here. This is where God will take them when they die. This is heaven, which is the opposite of suffering. Now, there's two groups of people here in this room in the same place at the same time, and they've had the same experience. God has rescued them. Have you been rescued from sin and death? Oh, that was quiet. Have you received Jesus? Then you've been rescued from sin and death, and ultimately you will be rescued from suffering and struggles here on earth. The opening verses tell us that, that four angels, or tells us about four angels at the four corners of the earth. Well, there are no four corners of the earth. The earth is not square. We know that there are no four corners, but this is symbolic. It's symbolic of the entire earth being covered. Land and sea and the trees, it mentions specifically, and, and that also suggests to us all the people and all the creatures that live in those places. And the angels have the power to bring judgment. They have the power to bring destruction, it says. But the pause button is pressed. We're on hold for the moment. Things don't reveal or resume, rather, until we get back to chapter 8. And so, for now, God holds them back, and he pauses his judgment, and he does something very special for the faithful. Now, imagine you'd been given a tangible sign that you would never, ever, ever have a bad dream again, that you would never, ever, ever have a nightmare again. Wouldn't you sleep easier? Especially those of you who have regular dreams like that. This is a sign that the nightmare is over. And so in Scripture, starting in verse 2, it says, Then I saw another angel coming up out of the east, having a seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the forehead of the servants of God. Now, last week we talked about seals. Last couple of weeks we talked about seals. The, you know, the, the scroll is sealed. It has sealing wax on it. Uh, you take a signet ring or you take a stamp that has your insignia on it and you stamp it on the seal and that, and that says, do not open 
you know, this is, has to go somewhere special. The person who's authorized to open this is the only one who's allowed to open it. And, and in this case, the seal of God is what it says, and it's being stamped on the forehead of God's faithful followers. So what does that represent? Well, it's, it's not saying do not open, <laughs> but it is saying they belong to me. It is saying you can't touch this. This is mine. They are sanctified. They are set aside. And we're going to read about later on, we're going to read about the mark of the beast. But, um, but God's mark is more powerful. God's mark is far more powerful. And God's mark is the real mark. And it says you can't ever be touched again by the beast or the dragon or the beast of the sea or whatever you might read about here in Revelation that's yet to come. Now, we said there's two groups here. Both are preserved by God in some way. The first sealed are from the tribes of Israel, the ones who believed, the 144,000 from Israel who believed. Now, dispensationalists believe that this is an exact literal number, but as we continue on to read through the book of Revelation, we'll see that that number, 144,000, comes to represent all of believers, not just the people of Israel. So it's symbolic. You know, it's the 12 by 12 thing. There are certain numbers in Scripture that have, you know, spiritual significance. And you think of the 12 tribes of Israel, we think of the 12 apostles, and here it's 12 by 12, right? The 144. Well, John's looking at this. He sees the tribes, and then he looks up. It's, it's, like, it's like God has hidden it from him until he reveals it to him. And he looks up and he sees that it's not just the 12 tribes, but there are multitudes of people standing before the throne. In fact, so many that he can't count them all. It says, after this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So many you couldn't count. Nobody was left out. Nobody. Every tribe, every people, every language. The call to salvation and the gift to salvation through the cross, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, was and is for everybody. Nobody is left out if we receive him by faith. You know, and here we are, the, the gathering in the throne room of God. It's for everybody, too. Uh, I mentioned when I preached on race and racism last summer that, that some supremacist groups, they, they use this passage and a couple of other passages, and they twist them around, and they say, oh, yeah, everybody's there, but they're all in their own little compartment, that they're all with their own people, that they're all divided. Do you see that here? We don't, do we? It's not there. It says they're all together. In fact, it goes further than that. It says that they begin to worship God together. And they were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, try to picture this. They're given white robes because of righteousness, not righteousness that they've earned, but it marks them as pure. They have palm branches in their hands, and they're shouting praises to God and to the Lamb. Does that remind you of anything? <laughs> palm Sunday is coming up, right? 
where they lined the sides of the road and they threw palm branches in the road as a sign of victory and, and Hosanna! <laughs> and they were shouting to the king of kings as he came down the hill. It's also a lot like the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Tabernacles that you read about in the Scripture. This is a special gathering in Jerusalem, and, and the people of God would line the road at the end of the week, and they would lie the road from the, the pool where they would gather the, what they called living water. When the waters stirred, they would scoop up the water, and they would carry it up in procession up to the temple, and the people would line the sides of the roads, and they would wave palm branches and they would shout and they would sing the psalms and they would praise God and that water would get to the temple and they would take that water and they would pour it over the altar as an offering but also as a symbol of cleansing in preparation for the sacrifices that would deliver them from their sin. There's a lot of symbolism here. They celebrate because they're free. They celebrate because their sins are paid. They celebrate because they've been delivered from death. They've woken up from the nightmare. There's no more suffering. And, and Satan can't ever touch them. And all the joy and all the glory comes out, and, and it all belongs to the Father. This is a, an intense moment of worship and then the angels and the living creatures join them, you know, and they shout amen and praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. It's another beautiful, powerful worship scene like in chapters 4 and 5 that we read before. Angels and all these people, way too many to count, just roaring out praise to God. It says in a loud voice, but it means, you know, really loud voice. And not just singing it, not just saying it, but shouting it. Shouting to the Lord praises. And then there's this strange question. You know, if, when you're reading this, if you, you might have noticed, there's, it's like, why does, why does this happen? The, one of the elders, the 24 elders who have thrones around the main throne, one of them gets up and talks to John and says to him, who are these people? Where did they come from? And it's a rhetorical question. He already knows the answer, and John knows that. John says, sir, you know that. You know. And he says, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. They've been made fully righteous, not because they lived perfect lives and, and not because they never messed up and not because they had all their spiritual ducks lined up in a row, but because they believed in Jesus and they received Jesus and they followed Jesus to the end. You know, we put so much emphasis on that moment of conversion as if that's the only thing that happens in Christian life. You know, as if there isn't something beyond that. But, but these are those who lived faithful lives for God through their whole lives to the end and continue to follow him. They even died because of him. And their greatest reward 
It's not the mansions in heaven that Jesus talks about in another place. But the greatest reward is that they get to serve in the temple of God, in the very presence of God. That's the reward. Now, we're coming to the part where we talk about it all the time when we're talking about heaven. You know, we talk about these things at funerals. We talk about these things to encourage each other when we're going through suffering, because, and rightfully so. Um, these people, they get a taste of what it's going to be like when God creates the new heaven and the new earth, when he transforms this place into heaven into some place that somehow that we don't necessarily understand that come together. And it's interesting, you know, we have a temple here in heaven, we have a temple that, that represents it on earth, but when you get to the end of the book, that temple disappears because now the presence of God is everywhere. And this is the part we like to talk about. These are they who've come out of the great tribulation. Well, what happens to them? He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Wow. Now that's, that's what I look forward to. That's a time to wait on. That's a time to put our trust in. That's a place for us. To, that's the ultimate reality. That's what's waiting for us. It says, he'll shelter them with his presence. Going back to the Feast of Tabernacles, when they had that feast and everybody came to Jerusalem, they would build these little huts, and the, these, these tents and huts, there would be poles and there would be a, a canopy covering over the top of it. And it says here, God will tabernacle them. That's what it literally says. That with his presence, he'll cover over them. He'll kind of surround them, envelop them. He'll tabernacle them. He'll build his tent over them. And there won't be any hunger and they'll never be thirsty and they won't be burned from the heat of the sun. And the lamb switches roles with the shepherd. The lamb becomes the shepherd. And now we start seeing images from the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me. You know, think of all those words and think about what's being said here. This is heaven's reward. And for those of us who are faithful to the end, this is the promise that we're waiting for. Now, how do we know this applies to us? We know it applies to the 144,000. We know it applies to the multitude who came out of the great tribulation. But how do we know it applies to us? Because I've read the end of the book. Because <laughs> when we get to the end of the book and we start getting to the new heaven and the new earth and we start getting towards that end, it repeats these same promises and some more besides, and it's for everybody. Our call is to faithfulness. Our call is to readiness. Faithfully following Jesus and being fully ready for his return. And there will be no more dying and no more hunger, no more thirst, no more tears. Together, forever, under God's present shelter. 
This is the promise of heaven for believers. Father God, give us the integrity of truth in our walk with you. Give us the stamina to be faithful through the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, let us be ready for your return. And while we wait to be ready to bring the gospel wherever you call us to take it, when you come, let us be found about our Father's business, doing what you've called us to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Next week, I encourage you to read ahead. We're going to be in chapter 8 as the seventh seal is broken. And we're going to talk about the rapture next week since we didn't have time to talk about it this week. But I know that some of you have already asked me about that. So we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about that, some of the theories. And and we're going to talk about this second round of wrath and judgment that's about to happen here.